Amen. I'm grateful for you guys. Church, grateful for the worship team. And I'm glad that we live in a place where we can gather together this morning and open our Bibles. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, I would ask you to find the Gospel of John as we're going to be looking together uh, at beginning in chapter 7 and carrying on into chapter 8. Now, after last week, those of you who are here are worried when I say two chapters again. That starts making you a little nervous. We're not going to read everything this morning. I wish that we had time to do that. We do not. Uh, But I want you to be able to follow along as we look at it. Now, quick survey of the room for those of you who aren't still flipping in your Bibles. uh, You're going to have to raise your hand with me on this. All right. How many of you watched the Super Bowl last week? Hands up. Okay, there we go. Okay, mine is down. You'll see that. Uh, I did not. Uh, I was I was go red team. That was that was my Super Bowl mantra. Uh, But uh, you watched the Super Bowl. How many of you watched it for the football game? Raise your hands. How many of you watched it for Taylor Swift? Raise your hands. Woo! Good job, Mike. Didn't mean to call you out like that from the stage, man. How many of you watched it for the advertisements? How many of you have gone back after and watched an ad that maybe you missed because you were refilling your nacho tray, right? And somebody told you, you need to check out this ad. The Super Bowl has become a phenomenon that transcends football. I love football. I enjoy watching football. It's, it's not that I was boycotting anything not watching it. It just was not a priority for me because it wasn't blue turf in Boise State, okay? Uh, but I didn't watch it, but a lot of people really enjoy watching football, and they'll watch the Super Bowl for that. But the advertisement has become kind of its own thing, right? And you have people spending $7 million dollars to get your attention for 30 seconds. Seven million dollars to get your attention for 30 seconds. Now, I plan to take about 30 to 40 minutes of your attention this morning, but don't send me the bill, okay? I'm not paying you for anything. But when you have an ad that is going to be 30 seconds for seven million dollars, you expect at least those companies expect, to get some sort of return on their investment, right? What they are doing is trying to captivate your attention. What they are doing is trying to reel you in to purchasing the product or service that they are selling. And the way they do that is they make astonishing claims. Those ads, whether they state it or not, are operating on the assumption that if they can convince you that they will change your life, that they will have just earned your business. And apparently, they are successful at that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be spending that much money for that little time. They are convincing you that what they are selling will change your life. Now, we live in a day and age in which we've been inundated with advertisements from the moment we are born, okay? We all scoff at advertisements. We all know what the advertisers are trying to do. And yet, clearly, we are still buying the products. And many times, it's without any sort of conscious thought. 
We don't even sit down and, and evaluate whether that new car would really transform our lives the way that they say that that car is going to transform our lives. We don't stop and ask whether a soap manufacturer can actually deliver on their promise to transform us. They can't, by the way. And yet, when we go to the store, we're much more likely to purchase it just on the off chance that maybe they're right. We give zero thought to it, and yet, that's what they're selling, is transformation. When we come to the Gospel of John, we are introduced to some radical claims we are introduced to something that is meant to be transformative. We, we are being shown something that legitimately is supposed to change everything about our lives. And yet, so many of us approach the gospel, we approach Christ the same way that we approach those ads. We don't stop for even a moment to consider the claims that are being made and whether or not they are true. In the text that we're looking at this morning, what we see is Jesus make some pretty incredible claims. And that's going to be our focus, but we don't, for the sake of time, we're not going to focus on every single claim that he makes in John chapter 7, verse 1 through John chapter 8, verse 30. We're just going to look at seven of the claims that he makes in this text. And these claims, I'm here to tell you, if he's right, in what he says, it should transform us. It should revolutionize our lives. It, it, should, it should completely rock our world to see these things true. But when we come to them too often, we just kind of shrug. We've heard it before. We've seen it before. Moving on. I want to say today that the claims that Jesus makes in this text are claims that we can do one of two things with. We can believe them, we can accept them, we can receive them, we can be changed by them, or we can reject them, but the one thing that we cannot do with these claims is shrug. We cannot imagine them of little importance. So, the first claim that we see we see it in chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Now, here you have Jesus interacting with his brothers. You have this festival of tabernacles or festival of booths or shelters, depending on translation there. This festival that's going to be taking place. And his brother's like, hey, you should go up. And he's like, hey, I don't think I will because the Jews are trying to kill me. Okay? He later does go, but he has to go in secret so that he doesn't get killed. But he makes an interesting claim when he's talking to them. In verse 6, Jesus told them, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Now, that does not seem like an earth-shattering claim, and yet it kind of is. Jesus claims that the world hates him. Jesus claims that the world hates him. Well, how can that be? If you look worldwide and you look at just a, a brief survey of the demographics of this round blue planet of ours, what you find is that there are over 2 billion people who say 
Jesus is king. Now, we're not gonna get into evaluating denominations. We're not gonna get into evaluating theology. You've got two billion plus people who are saying Jesus is king. Does the world really hate Jesus? Well, yeah. Because while there are those who have been changed by the gospel, while there are those who have embraced him and they love him, the vast majority of the world is directly opposed to the claims of Christ. Two billion for, six billion against. Now, I can't even wrap my head around one billion, let alone eight billion, but that's how many people they tell us are living on planet Earth, and the majority of them have chosen to not follow Christ or have never heard of Christ to begin with, which is a subject for us to consider at great length, church. But when we look at this, we look at the world and we say there are some people who have believed, yes, but the majority of people have not. And, and not only that, but the world actively opposes the gospel message. There are 3,000 plus unreached, unengaged people groups. People with unique cultures, languages, groups within, that's not nations, but that's people groups. There are 3,000 plus of them who have not been reached with the gospel. The reason that most of them have not been reached with the gospel is because they are located, they live in countries where it is dangerous for Christians, where the policies either on the books or in practice are to persecute and try to eradicate the gospel message. And when we look at that, we look at that and we say, okay, that's something new. No, it's not. Jesus says, they're, they're gonna kill me. They're trying to kill me. The world hates Jesus. And it doesn't take long to evaluate this claim. Now, that sounds strange. Kurt Vonnegut, an atheist, an author, said that he did not want to live in a world in which Jesus had not preached the Sermon on the Mount. Now, he rejects Jesus' claim, but he loves Jesus' message, he says. And you find people all the time who say, I don't believe all the religious stuff, but Jesus seems like he was a pretty cool cat, right? Seems like he was all right. Gandhi said, I like your Christ. It's your Christians that I can't stand. But does Gandhi, does Vonnegut, do they understand that they can have a Jesus in their head that's not the Jesus who actually is? Most of us have encountered people who like Jesus, but only part of Jesus. I really like Jesus's moral philosophy, but I really don't like what he says about forgiving my enemies. I really like what Jesus says about saving me, but I don't like what Jesus says about me obeying him. I really like this part of Jesus, but not this part of Jesus. Here's the deal, friends, you can't pick and choose. This is not like a choose your own adventure book. How many of y'all remember choose your own adventure books, right? This is not like turn to page 73. Oh, there's the Jesus I like. You get all Jesus or none of Jesus. And if you get all of Jesus, you have one choice, love him or hate him. He's a polarizing figure. The Jews wanted to kill him. People today want to eradicate his message because it challenges us. The world hates Jesus. This is an easy claim to evaluate. It's a harder claim to respond to. 
Do you love Christ or do you hate Christ? Do you embrace Christ and his way of life? And do you embrace Christ and his teaching? Do you embrace Christ and his message of reconciliation with his father? Or do you reject it? If you're embracing half of the message, you've rejected the whole thing. If, if you hate this part, you hate all the parts. The question of this claim is we have to ask ourselves, where are we in this relation to Jesus? Are we in the world or are we with Christ? But Jesus goes on to make further claims. He does go up to the festival, but he goes up secretly so that the Jews do not uh, kill him. And in, in his going there, inevitably, he begins to teach. Seems like Jesus couldn't go anywhere without beginning to teach. And what he stands up and says surprises the Jews. They're like, he hasn't learned, been, he hasn't studied under any rabbis we know. How can he know all of this stuff? Well, Jesus makes a claim. He says, my teaching is from God. I didn't learn it from rabbi so-and-so or teacher so-and-so. My teaching comes direct from the source. It's from God. Look down at verse 16. Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. Jesus says, look, I am teaching you not what so-and-so says. I'm teaching you what the God of heaven and earth says. That's a big claim. That's, a, that's actually, that's, that's startling in its arrogance if it's not true. Jesus says, my teaching doesn't need the stamp of approval of some accrediting body because my teaching is accredited by God himself. Brothers and sisters, have you evaluated that claim? Have you approached the teaching of Jesus as if it comes direct from the source or have you taken it like an all-you-can-eat buffet? I really like fried shrimp. I'm not so big on broccoli. I really, really like that dessert table but I'm not so keen on that salad bar, right? Many of us approach Jesus' teaching the same way, kind of picking and choosing. I like this part, don't like that part. I'm gonna do that part, I'm not gonna do that part. But Jesus says that's not how to do this. If Jesus' teaching is from God, then it has to be received as such. It has to be received as authoritative. It's not something that we can just pick and choose the parts we like. Jesus' teaching comes directly from God and we ought to evaluate it. If Jesus' teaching is from God and God created everything, then you would expect Jesus' teaching to line up with reality. Does Jesus' teaching line up with reality? Now, this morning, we're not going to have time to evaluate that, but yeah, it does. Because Jesus, teach, Jesus teaches us that humanity is infinitely valuable. He, he says to us, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done it for me. He says that we ought to treat other people the way we would want to treat the God of the universe. And we look around at society and everybody thinks that the way we treat one another matters. We just can't agree on why. If we're just the products of time and chance operating over millions and billions of years, then there's no reason why we ought to treat anybody any better than the cheetah treats the gazelle. 
Why is it wrong for us to do that, but right for the animals? Modern world can't answer that. But Jesus says it matters because you are made in the image of God, and the way you treat one another is the way you are essentially treating God himself. Jesus' teaching lines up with reality. He tells us that we are infinitely valuable. He tells us that we are incredibly, horribly bad. And we don't have to do much looking around, let alone in the mirror, to realize that's close to accurate. That's in accordance with reality. But if Jesus' teaching is from God, not only will it agree with reality, but it's also gonna agree with what God's already said. Jesus' teaching does not come in as something brand new on the scene. Time and time again, Jesus in his teaching points us back to the Old Testament. Time and time again, he points us back to what God has already said. And then he proceeds to show us, hey, what God said and how you interpret it don't always line up. You've heard that it was said, do not kill. But I say to you, do not be angry with your brother. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy and pray for those who spitefully use you. Jesus' teaching doesn't just accord with, it doesn't just line up with what God has already said. It corrects our misunderstandings along the way. And so any way we evaluate it, Jesus' teaching is consistent with what has gone before. It's consistent with the reality. We conclude this claim must be true. His teaching is not from Rabbi so-and-so. His teaching is from God himself. He goes on. He says, not only is my teaching from God, but I'm from God. God sent me and I'm going back to God. Look down with me at verse 28. There's this whole discussion. There's this arguing about who the Messiah is and where the Messiah is gonna come from. And when they are arguing about that, Jesus just kind of cuts through the clutter and says, you know me and you know where I'm from. Yet I've not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Jesus says, not only is my teaching from God, but I, I am from God. And then he goes on in verse 33. He says, look, I'm only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You'll look for me, but you'll not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. God sent me here and I'm going back there. And you can't go there. God sent me here because you couldn't get there. I'm going back there, you can't get there. Now, what that tells us is that there's something vitally important about Jesus being from God, being here for the while, and then going back to God. What, what it tells us is that every attempt we make to get to where God is, is going to fail. Depending on how you interpret it, the Tower of Babel has been, been said to be, this is man's attempt to reach God, right? You look at Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal, right? And you've got these priests of Baal crying out to their God and, and Elijah's making fun of them. Hey, maybe your God's asleep. <laughs> maybe he's on the toilet. Yes, kids, the Bible actually says that. Right, maybe he's indisposed. 
And then Elijah prays and God sends fire down. There's a clear understanding throughout scripture that where God is, we can't get to on our own. But God can interact from there here. And Jesus says this time, he didn't do it by sending fire. This time he didn't do it by sending a confusion of languages. This time he didn't do it by sending a flood. This time he has interacted with you by sending me. Jesus comes from God, the place we cannot go. Jesus is here for a short time, he says, and then when he's done, he's going to go back to where we cannot go, which means we should probably listen to the guy. This is important. This matters. If there's somewhere we all want to get, but none of us can go, and somebody comes from there, and we know that he goes back there, we should pay attention, right? Do y'all have a favorite restaurant? Do y'all have a favorite restaurant anywhere? Yeah, some of, some of you guys do, right? You get your favorite restaurant, and you're like, I've got to find one of those. My parents are visiting us right now. They're in town, and we're enjoying that time with them by putting them to work on our house. It's been great. Um, they're very gracious and all of that. My mom loves cheddars. They don't have cheddars in Idaho where she lives. Guess what our first stop was? We get them at the airport in Nashville, and we're coming up. We get to Clarksville, and we go to cheddars right? You ever been on the road and you see one of those uh, trucks driving by It says, follow me to great something, right? Follow me to great food. Follow me to great coffee, right? Essentially what Jesus has done, he's saying, hey, look, you don't know where that place is, but I've been there. I'm going back there. You can follow me there, right? You don't have this where you're from, but I'm going to show you how to get there. We should listen when somebody makes a claim like that, when somebody makes a claim like that, we should also be a little skeptical. How do we know that Jesus came from God? How do we know that Jesus went back? We know from Old Testament prophecies that tell us over and over and over, this is what you should expect of the one that God sends. And then Jesus proceeds to fulfill every single one of them. And we know where he went because we've got hundreds of eyewitnesses who agree Jesus went up from this earth in the clouds to the Father. Stephen in Acts 7 sees Jesus in heaven, seated at the right hand. This is truth. God was sent, Jesus was sent by God and he returned to God. We should pay attention to what he says. We keep going on though. Not only did he come from God and then return to God, but he gives us something even after he leaves. Look at verse 37. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit, but the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus says, my teaching is from God, I'm from God, I'm going back to God, but if you believe in me, you will have streams of living water flowing out from you. And John says, hey, he's talking about the spirit. So Jesus comes from God with teaching from God, he goes back to God, but then he sends something, someone really, he sends someone 
to do something utterly unique in the history of the world. You know how many Jesuses there were? One, right? You know how many places Jesus could be at once? One. But he says something unique. He says, if you believe in me, you're gonna receive the spirit of God. Now, how many of us are there in this room? Look around real quick. Yeah, I'm not good at math either. I don't know. But every single person who believes, Jesus says, receives the spirit of God. You're gonna go places that I'm not gonna go this week. You're gonna talk to people that I'm not gonna talk to this week. The impact of God's presence in his people is a multiplier that Jesus portrays as living water running out. A few weeks ago, Kumar talked about this, that this living water that wells up in the people of God is meant to just continue to expand and flow and grow and reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus says it's the spirit that does that. Well, we should evaluate this claim because that's pretty strong to say that the people who believe receive the presence of God in their very life are indwelt by the Holy One of Israel, experience daily the presence of the Creator, are empowered and set free by God Himself. Have you ever met somebody who was radically changed when they placed their faith in Christ? Have you ever talked to an addict who said it's a daily struggle but praise God, I'm still winning. Have you ever met somebody who used to be so sharp-tongued and bitter and then they have this encounter with Christ and all of a sudden, they're still sharp-tongued and bitter, but they repent when they do it? They come to you in humility and say, I'm so sorry I said that. Please forgive me. It's not hard to evaluate this claim when we see people who have placed their trust in Jesus begin to exhibit just craziness. And I'm not talking about speaking in tongues or running around the aisles. What I'm talking about is the transformation. People talk about people can't actually change. Nobody actually changes and yet I've seen it. I've seen people radically transformed who've placed their faith in Christ and who live a life now that looks so utterly different from what it looked like before. How'd that happen? Streams of living water. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who believe in him. You didn't do it. If you have that story, if you know that you've been changed by Christ, you didn't do that. You couldn't do that. But God can. God transforms people. And we see it. We hear testimony of it. That's one of the things that I think we need to do more of is testify to the transformation that Jesus brings. We need to understand that in this claim, Jesus is saying something just as earth shattering as the fact that his teaching is from God. And even more so because it's life shattering to know that God himself will dwell in those who believe in him. It's not about a religious experience. It's about this transformed life that evidences the presence of God in us. Startling claim. We need to think about it. Jesus keeps going though. He doesn't just say he's going to give this living water, but he makes a further claim. 
Look at verse 40. When the crowd heard these words, they said, truly, this is the prophet. Now, they've already talked about the prophet, right? They've already talked about the fact that there is a prophet. And then some of them said, this is the Messiah. But then some of them go, well, he can't be the prophet. He can't be the Messiah. Surely not. Because we know where he's from. He's from nowhere. He's from Galilee. And Jesus says, you don't understand. You're trying to restrict me to this little backwater. You're trying to say, this is where I'm from. Look at verse 12. This is the claim he makes. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, now think about the world for just a second. And we already talked about 8 billion people on the surface of this planet, right? If you can wrap your head around that, good on you, you're way ahead of me. Now, now wrap your head around the fact that you can drive for two days and still be in Texas. And then recognize, contrary to what any Texan will tell you, that that is not the entire world, but merely a small part of it. Recognize that there are places and people that you've never even heard of. And if you set out walking, you could walk your entire life and not explore half of this world. And Jesus says, y'all think I'm from some backwater town in Israel. I am the light of the world. This isn't just about this tiny little corner of the Middle East. This isn't just about southwestern Kentucky. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. My impact is global and local. My my impact transcends any category that you could even try to fit it in. I am the light of the world. Not only that, but he says, (laughs) if you follow me, you will always have light. You will always have life. He claims to give light and life to everyone who follows him. Not just those who follow him in Galilee, not just those who follow him in Jerusalem, not just those who follow him in Hopkinsville, anywhere on the surface of the globe, any person, any language, any situation. He says, I will give you light. I will give you life. That's a pretty startling claim. And yet, what do we see over 2,000 years of church history? You have brothers and sisters. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have brothers and sisters who are walking in the exact same light, even though they don't speak the same language you do, they don't have the same background you do, they don't have the same upbringing you do, they don't have the same benefits and, and, and rights that you do, they don't have any of those things, and yet they are walking just as sure of God's will, just as sure of the right things to do, just as sure of the light as anybody just as remade, just as reborn, just as changed, just as transformed, they are walking in life. Because Jesus is not just from Galilee, he's the light of the world. And if you have followed Christ, you're in the light. Now, if we shut off the lights in this room right now, you wouldn't be able to see anything. You couldn't get out without tripping over everybody and everything in the room, but we leave the lights on so that you don't do that. 
we leave the lights on so that you can read your Bible. But if you shut off the lights, you can't see anything. If you turn the lights on, you can. Jesus says, I've done that. I've turned on the lights for everybody that follows me. So you don't have to stumble around lost and blind like everybody else. He says that he's the life. You look at people on this hamster wheel, just churning, just hustling, just moving, just surviving, and it looks pretty pathetic. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what I intended. I meant for you to find your passion. Every heart is meant to give that cry. Oh, Christ be magnified. Let his praise arise because he is the light and the life of men. But there's a flip side to that coin. If Jesus is light, if Jesus is life, then to not have Jesus is to not have light and to not have life. And that's the claim that he goes on to make. Look at verse 21. Then he said, I'm going away. You'll look for me and you will die in your sin. Jesus claims that those who don't believe in him die in their sin. Sin is often compared to darkness. Sin is to be outside of the light, to fall short of the glory of God. Jesus says, yeah, if I'm the light, if I'm the light and you don't have me, then you have darkness and you have death. That's a pretty startling claim. Jesus claims to be the hinge for all of reality. Jesus claims to be the one who determines your eternal destination. Jesus claims to be the conduit of God's forgiveness to you. Jesus claims that without him, you will die in your sins. Seems to me we might want to ask whether or not we have believed in him. Light and life sound so much better than darkness and death, do they not? And Jesus says, that's me. I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. All of these analogies that Jesus uses point us to the fact that he is the entry point. There is no other name given among men by which we may be saved. What you do with Jesus matters a very great deal. It doesn't just matter to you and your eternal destinations. It matters to your impact on those around you. If you don't believe Jesus is the center of all reality, you're going to conclude like everybody else who's ever lived that you're the center of reality. And when we conclude that we are the center of reality, what, it inevitably, what inevitably ends up happening is that people around us suffer as a result. You don't want to die in your sin. You don't want your sin to cause pain and suffering for other people. Believe in Jesus. That claim has to be evaluated. And you know what? At the end of the day, I can't prove this to you. I can't prove that Jesus forgives you of your sin. I can't prove that if you believe in him, you'll live forever. I can't prove it. At some point, faith kicks in. 
At some point, you have to decide based on his claims, based on those that are fulfilled, based on the consistency that I see in his teaching, based on the revelation that's been given in the Old Testament that he fulfills, based on everything else that I see about Jesus, based on the miracles that he's performing to confirm his teaching, I have to conclude that this reality that I can't see until I get there is true. Now, some of you, that leap of faith is just too far. You say, no, prove it. Well, you're making the same leap of faith just in the opposite direction. Jesus becomes an inflection point where you're out at the end of the promontory, you're hanging out over the edge of the cliff and you've got a choice. Do I jump right or do I jump left? You don't have a choice of not jumping. You're just choosing the direction. Do I believe that Jesus is not who he claims he is? I'm gonna make this leap of faith this way because I can't prove that he's not. Do I believe that he is who he says he is? Then I'm gonna jump this way. I can't prove it. It's a leap, but it's a leap either way. Let me ask you, which way do you wanna jump? Do you wanna jump in the direction of hope? Do you wanna jump in the direction of light and life? Or do you wanna jump in the direction of death and darkness? Do you wanna jump in the direction of despair? The question for us is not where or whether or not we should take the leap of faith. The question is, which leap are we going to take? Because we can't prove these things, but we can evaluate all the others and conclude if he's right here, he's probably right here. And if he's right on this one, he's probably right on this one too. These astonishing claims that Jesus makes have to be dealt with. You and I have to make a decision we cannot shrug. And yet for too many of us, just the mundanities of life keep us shrugging, keep us ignoring, keep us waiting, keep us focused on anything but. This calls for us to make a decision. It called for Jesus to make a decision. We don't think about it that way often. We don't think about the fact that this led to Jesus making a decision, but it did. Look at verse 28 of chapter 8. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I can do nothing on my own. But just as the father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me, has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. Jesus says, when the son of man is lifted up. We hear that term lifted up and we're thinking about lifting our hands up in praise. We're thinking about lifting up in glory when Jesus says, when the son of man is lifted up, he's not talking about those things necessarily because there's something that comes first. He already said to Nicodemus, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. And in doing so, he referred to the cross. He referred to his death. It is in the moment where the people put Christ to death that we see he has made his decision. He has decided that no matter the cost, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet nonetheless, not what I will not what I want, but what you want. Brothers and sisters, Jesus made his decision. Those who don't believe in him die in their sin, but he died for our sin because that's what the Father desired. Now, this is an easy claim to evaluate. Did Jesus die? Yes. And it's not just 
Christian sources that tell us this. One of the earliest proofs we have from archaeology for Christianity is from a Roman barracks where one soldier scrawled some graffiti on the wall and had a picture of a cross and a a being on the cross. And underneath, he had scrawled the name of one of his fellow soldiers, and he said, this is this guy's God. Jesus stretched out his arms, died on a cross for you and for me. When the Son of Man is lifted up, you come to a decision point. And you know, you know that nobody in their right mind would choose the cross unless they were truly following the will of the one who said, I am not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, to life. Jesus' decision cost him his life, but he did it for us. He died the death that we deserved. He paid the penalty that we could not pay except with our destruction. And he calls us to believe. He calls us to receive that gift. Brothers and sisters, when we look at this list of these claims, these seven claims that we looked at in this passage, it should challenge us we should recognize we've got to do something with this. If you have never believed, today's the day. If you've never taken a moment to think about this, some of y'all take more time planning on where you're going to go to lunch on Sunday than you do thinking about these claims. You'll spend more time figuring out your family vacation than you will your eternal destination. I'd suggest that you pay a little bit more attention to what Jesus has claimed because if he's right, that changes everything. And if he's not, then get back to vacation planning. But you've got to take it seriously. You've got to evaluate it at some point. My hope, my prayer is that today is that moment for you that you'll evaluate whether or not these things are so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for making these claims that force us to sit up and take notice. Thank you for not letting us sit idly. Thank you for confronting us with things that we have to think about, have to consider. God, I pray that we would. I pray that we'd think well and think rightly. But even that is beyond us. We're so distracted, God. Our minds are so clouded by sin. We've rejected you for so long that it's become a habit. Holy Spirit, we need you this morning to bring life where there is death. Jesus, to give light where there is darkness to give transformation where there's just the same old, same old. Shock us, God, this morning. Change us. We can't do it. We need you to do it for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Church, we're gonna have a moment of invitation. Last week,
The response was to go and to think. This week, the response is to come and to talk. If you've never placed your trust in Christ, if you've never committed your life to him, I want to talk to you this morning. And I'm gonna be standing right here at the front. You come and you find me and we'll talk about it. You think about those claims that he made. Some of you, you thought about the claims and you believed, but then you've just kind of grown stale and you need to repent. You need to return to your first love. This is the moment of decision. What you can't do is shrug. What you can't do is not care. You have to decide, is this true? Then my life needs to take these steps. If this is false, I wouldn't even bother coming back next week because it's just a game at that point. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Come to him this morning as we stand and sing. Let's stand.